so many people come at us like we're worried about the robots. We're worried about the robots. We're worried about the robots. Where we sit, we worry about the humans. I mean, seriously, the level of stupidity is unbelievable. Are the robots really what you should be worried about? I mean, have you looked at the FBI crime clock? I'm not sure a robot had anything to do with a property crime occurring every few seconds and a, and a violent crime another few seconds, right? That's all 100% human. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. I'm Donna Laughlin, and each week I'll take you on a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. On this podcast, you'll hear from innovators from an array of industries and philosophies who imagined and are still imagining the future. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. Robotics and artificial intelligence have been a frequent topic on this show. But so far, it's been something that we've discussed mostly in the abstract. What AI is and what it isn't. But I've been wanting to talk with AI entrepreneurs about the products they're bringing to market and how they're using artificial intelligence to improve our lives. And my guests today are doing just that in a very big way. William Santana Lee, who goes by Bill, and Stacey D. Stevens are the co-founders of Nightscope, a company that develops autonomous security robots to combat crime. No, this isn't another sequel to Robocop. Nightscope deploys its robots, including the five-foot-tall K5 that weighs 400 pounds, to monitor places like shopping malls, airports, warehouses, and even neighborhoods for crime and suspicious activity. Bell and Stacy founded the company in 2013. Bell had spent years as an auto industry executive with Ford Motors, and Stacy was an engineer with a law enforcement background. They were inspired to act after the horrific Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. Their mission was simple, make America the safest country in the world with crime-fighting robots to enhance our human-led security forces with technology that could help detect, deter, report, and ultimately save lives. Nine years later, Nightscope is the biggest player in a growing segment that Bill and Stacy created almost out of thin air. Before we get into Nightscope itself, I should first tell you a bit about Bill and Stacy. Bill was born in Queens, a borough of New York City, and raised in Connecticut. His parents were immigrants. His mother came to the U.S. from Colombia, his father from China. He studied engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, where he fell in love with the mechanics of transportation. Oh, I don't know why I'm fascinated with things working together like a system. And so... I got my first car when I was 16, and I don't know, it's just you could combine brand, engineering, finance, manufacturing, technology, everything into one very cool product, and then you can actually get in and start it. And that combination got me really excited. So one of the classes I took at at Carnegie was a little daunting. I guess Chrysler had donated an engine, (laughs) but none of it was working. And so my assignment for the semester is like, hey, there's all these parts here. 
here's a dynamometer, get the engine on the dyno and set it all up. And I, there's no user's manual or anything. So it's like, okay, this is going to be fun. So anyway, I got it working. And then I wanted to get an internship in the auto industry. So I, I think I remember sending out like 60 or 70 resumes or something. And my first choice was Ford Motor Company for a bunch of silly reasons. And I got like, I don't know, 68 rejections and I got two offers, both of them from Ford Motor Company. And so like, okay, uh, I got what I wanted. So off we go. And it was an awesome summer job. And I promised myself I would work my butt off to make sure that they would hire me back. So at Ford, you had several roles, but one of the ones that really stood out for me was the division that you were running and the EV. Can you talk a little bit about that? The last position? Uh, yeah. So my second and last job, I was director of mergers and acquisitions. At the time, Ford Motor Company had a strategy to basically buy everything. So we're pretty active. There's a lot of M&A going on. And then one morning, I remember vividly walking in, in into my office and there was literally a handwritten note on my desk. Something to the effect of, Europe is going to pass legislation to demand automakers take vehicles back at the end of their lives, likely to bankrupt the company. Please fix. <laughs> that was the assignment. <laughs> it's like, okay. So at the time, the guys had done the roll-up on Blockbuster and waste management. A roll-up is basically buying a, a company and then buying another one and another one. They all look the same and then make one big one. And that's how waste management grew up and AutoNation and Blockbuster. And so they were doing a roll-up in the used parts industry, which effectively was recycling. And so I took me six months, 23 executive reviews, and I was able to get the board to release $250 million to me to do a roll-up in the used parts industry. So I was literally going around buying companies for 11 months. I bought 22 companies in, in that period of time. I would make an overture at breakfast, fly somewhere else, make a, do the due diligence, and then fly somewhere else and do a closing dinner. Now, Stacy's background couldn't be any more different than Bill's. While Bill spent his entire career with the same company, Stacy tried a bit of everything. He was raised in Dallas, where his father was a successful corporate finance executive. But Stacy's passion was flying. He got into planes at an early age and later studied aerospace engineering at the University of Texas at Arlington. After graduating in 1993, he ended up working in the financial services industry before eventually joining a local police department in the Dallas suburbs. It would take a few years, but it was a job that would eventually change his life. The next thing I know, almost 10 years had passed. And I looked back and said, oh, my God, what's happened to my life? This is not what I wanted to do. I'd done well for myself, but it just was not what I wanted to do. And by coincidence, a buddy of mine was a police officer in Dallas. We got together frequently and he said, hey, do you want to come for a ride along? And the rest, as they say, was history. I went for the ride along, absolutely loved it, enjoyed it, sought out more, did more with other agencies and started looking for law enforcement type work and figured out, okay, I got to go through the police academy, got sponsored to go through the police academy, graduated valedictorian and ended up quitting my job as a white collar guy to go be a police officer. So how did the two of you initially meet? Because your first company you started, it was Carbon Motors. And so... 
Where did that inflection come together? Careful what email you reply to. <laughs> Careful what email you send. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, the crazy Texan was still working as a police officer. And I came across this company on, I saw a spot on TV actually about a startup company in California that was building build to order internet vehicles. So you could, it was, you know, before anybody ever thought about ordering cars online, this company was actually trying to pioneer it. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. And I, you know, as a police officer, I'd always thought, hey, these cars that we ride around in, they're not designed or engineered to be police cars. They're passenger, luxury passenger vehicles in some cases that have a bunch of aftermarket equipment, Mr. Potato headed together to make a police car. And I said, surely, you know, there's got to be a better way of doing this. So I did some research on the company that I saw, emailed the CEO's office and got a reply back the same day. And that's what Bill's talking about, the reply that he did. After 9-11, I vowed to try to figure out how to help the country, but then coming from a military family, I had no idea how this would go about. And then out of the blue, a first responder asked for help okay, I guess we're going down this path. And so we, I started learning more and more about how screwed up the entire public safety, law enforcement, security apparatuses in the U.S. Most people don't know that the U.S. Department of Defense has a, well, this coming year, nearly an $800 billion budget. There's one person in charge, the Secretary of Defense, and there is a innovation process, there's risk capital, there's business and technical sign-offs, and we give the two plus million soldiers in a theater of war every level of capability you might ever imagine. And there are dozens of companies that provide that support to them, a Lockheed Martin, a Northrop Grumman, a General Dynamics, a Boeing, a Raytheon. The process takes a long time, it's bloody expensive, but the troops get unimaginable capabilities. We on our own soil do not do that. There's a million security guards, there's a million law enforcement professionals, and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the U.S. Department of Justice have no federal jurisdiction. Over 19,000 law enforcement agencies, 8,000 private security firms. So there's no one in charge, like someone shoots up a school or shoots up a movie theater, like who gets fired? No one, because no one's in charge and no one's accountable. And there's no innovation process. There's no risk capital. There are no massive companies generating that innovation for these people that on our own soil are willing to take a bullet for you and your family. But the level of technology we provide to them is basically the technological equivalent of a number two pencil and a notepad. And so the more I dug, the more infuriated I got. Like, okay, so the government's first role is to protect its citizens. Why is it that we allow crime and terrorism to have a $2 trillion negative economic impact on the U.S. every single year? It's literally a hidden tax we all pay in blood, tears, and treasure. And we're in a 46th president. Country's over well over 200 years old. No one's fixed the problem. So, of course, any rational, sane person would go, well, let's go fix that problem. So my, uh, my little motto in life is life is short, do what you love, and make a big impact. And so we decided that we're going to go try to figure out how to make a big impact. And part of that is providing the first responders, the law enforcement professionals, the security 
guards much better tools for them to be able to actually do their jobs. Yeah. And you think about that trillion dollar number you just said, it's like, wow, we all need to be part of this. Yeah. I mean, if everyone's like, well, you're taking the company public, what's the share price going to be? And, you know, that's a great achievement. It's, it's like going public is a financing. It's not the end goal of the company. The end goal is to see if we can make the U.S. the safest country in the world. And let's just, you know, pause for a moment and just suspend reality. Let's say we're able to achieve that. Now tell me the share price. You have a recurring revenue business for a recurring societal problem that literally affects everything and everyone. And you're able to fix something that's never been able to be addressed prior. Obviously, as an officer of the company, we both have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders. But at the end of the day, I quote unquote, don't care where the share price ends up. It's like, can we achieve the mission? The share price will take care of itself. Well, and in the past couple of years, you know, there's been this race to go to space and Mars, and it's interesting to watch death side. But I look at it and say, well, we have to fix what, what's not working here on this planet first, which is your mission is to make America one of the safest countries in the world. How can the night scope robots actually help us do that? I think it's, to break it down, it's two very simple concepts. The first concept is a little less obvious for folks that don't spend time in law enforcement or security, but just physically being there stops a lot of nonsense from happening. So just providing that physical deterrence, a lot of people ask, well, why are the robots so big? Well, you want to provide a little bit of an intimidation factor without scaring people. So this would be like the equivalent of, Donna, if I put a police car in front of your home, criminal behavior will change, right? or you're driving down 101, I don't care what speed you're doing, if you see a cop car on the side of the road, you're gonna pump those brakes, right? So if you can provide a tool, and it's this is not science fiction, right? So we hold contracts from Hawaii to Rhode Island operating 24 seven, 365, we've operated out in the field for more than a million hours. And we've gotten actual crime fighting wins. If you go to nightscope.com, go to the crime page, you can see all the positive things that the machines have done for society and know they're not coming to kill you and take your job. And so that's very simple. Just provide that physical deterrence. And then can you provide, as, as Stacy would say, unprecedented situational awareness? Yeah. So I want to talk about that, Stacey. Just talk about on the law enforcement side, the importance of that awareness and what that really does for law enforcement in and your firsthand knowledge being a former police officer, what does that really mean to have this situational awareness? So when Bill and I were kicking around ideas to, to start a company for public safety, it was shortly after the shootings that took place at Sandy Hook. And one of the questions that Bill asked me early on was, I don't understand. I turn the TV on and I see an event like this going on. And all I see are police cars and fire trucks and ambulance and everything staged outside and camera shot overhead and nothing appears to be happening. I don't get it. I said, I, I understand. And the reason you don't see anything happening or it appears as though nothing is happening is because that's what they're doing. They're actually trying to gather intelligence. They're trying to figure out where is the bad guy? What's his motivation? What hostages are there? What weapons are available? What part of the building? I mean, if you think of a school, it could be upwards of a million square feet. 
where in that million square feet do you enter? How do you approach them in the most efficient way that's going to put you in an advantage that's not going to get people hurt? And so situational awareness is simply having intelligence that allows you to make a smarter, safer, and faster decision. So with, for example, one of our mobile robots in a situation like that, the robot can be patrolling the inside of that building and you can get eyes and ears at eye level what's going on and feed that directly to somebody outside so they can see in real time what's happening. That's going to infinitely improve that situational awareness that we're talking about and give them the tool that they need to be able to bring some tragic event like that to a close much quicker. Yeah, and I just had a personal incident with my daughter a few weeks ago, um, just a few days before Christmas. She texted me a message that said, Mom, don't come to the mall. There's been a shooting. But it's not a message you want to receive ever, needless to say, a few days before a major holiday. And if a K-5 robot or the K-1 weapons detection was on location, perhaps that incident could have been situationally prevented, right? Or at least controlled. So, and that was a real situation. And as a parent, being the recipient of that text, I shared it, you know, with you, Stacey, because I was just like, this is real. This is happening. This type of stuff happens way too often. But Donna, it's a simple math problem. It's not that difficult to comprehend. If you were to say, I just said there's 2 million humans securing folks, but they're running 24-7, right? So at any given time, you can't triple shift a human. So if you want to cover a post for 24 hours, seven days a week, 365, you actually need four people. So you can take those 2 million that are out there and divide by four. So you have no more than 500,000 people trying to secure 300 million people across 50 states. There's 70 million cameras and 500,000 people. That's not going to cut it. And one crazy number to go look at is the NYPD police department. That is not a police department. That's almost an army. I mean, it's 30,000, 35,000 officers in a relative to the rest of the country, a tiny, tiny area. My friends in New York can get upset with me, but, you know, comparably speaking between looking at Boston or Los Angeles, like they're comparable cities. They're big cities, right? You're looking at Boston, uh, Stacy can probably help me out here, some 3,000, maybe 5,000 officers. LA's, you know, probably less than 10,000. This is not a popular thing to say. We just don't have enough officers and guards to do the job appropriately. And then they're wondering, oh, we don't have enough people and we don't have enough or any tools. Why isn't this working? <laughs> like, it's not that hard to understand why this is broken. And there lie, therein lies the infuriation, but also the opportunity. And so let's talk a little about the 24-7 and the KSOC intelligence, because that's the software part that's really, really important to the platform. The type of data and machine learning that can be delivered to the law enforcement or whoever is the person in charge of operations for safety on campus or public sector. So yeah, the KSOC is a browser-based user interface. So anywhere you have internet access, a browser, whether it's a mobile device, a tablet, your phone, laptop, or computer, and your credentials, you can access your deployment from anywhere virtually in the world. 
And what that allows you to do is dial into that situational awareness that we were talking about earlier in real time. So you can look at 360 degree videos from each one of the robots, two-way audio. So yes, the robots do talk. Yes, you can talk to a robot, but really you could talk through a robot using an intercom feature. We can use that as a public address system to broadcast announcements specific to a location. You can talk about branding messages, uh, even just, you know, welcome, thank you for shopping here. Anything, any kind of message that just kind of lets people know that it's more than just a moving camera, because I think that's a notion that some people actually believe. But it does so much more than that. So we've covered two, the audio and the video. We also have license plate recognition. License plate recognition will allow us to look for either known threats or known persons. It could be on a positive side, looking for employees, as an example, and then you do an exception report saying, hey, somebody is in this employee parking lot that doesn't belong. But you could also look for the known threats. Signal detection for mobile devices. We have thermal imaging for, if you think along the lines, uh, fire life safety, looking for temperatures or things that might be indicative of a fire or overheating something. We have facial recognition on the K1, which is our stationary robot, and elevated body temperature as well. So all of these things, oh, and people detection. So looking for people in places where they should not be or at times of day when they should not be there. And all these things combined together give that additional bit of information and intelligence. But it's not just thrown up on a screen for somebody to look at. What happens is any one of those anomalies can be on a be on the lookout list, a BOLO list. and when you do that, the KSOC will actually generate an alert that will send to you via email, text, or the user interface all together and give you that information in real time to go, hey, something is up here. You might want to take a look at it. So it's not like you have to constantly monitor what's going on. The robots and the software are doing a lot of that heavy lifting for you. So let's talk about the types of crimes or the places that you've been in, shopping malls, corporate campuses, stadiums, airports. So initially, we were primarily focused on business to business. So you might see these at an airport, as as you mentioned. It could be a manufacturing facility. It could be a corporate campus. It uh, might be a hospital, a casino. Basically, Anywhere outdoors or indoors, you might see a security guard or an officer is certainly an opportunity for us. We're in the middle of a two-year nightmare cybersecurity approval with the U.S. federal government. I think that's going to be a huge opportunity for us in the future. So hopefully, we'll see if this goes well. But by the end of 2022, we should have an ATO or an authority to operate. So that opens up a significant amount of opportunities where we can apply all our learnings from the private sector to help the federal government. And this is not necessarily the help the military police at the Air Force Base patrol the Air Force Base. That That is an opportunity. But you also have to think about the entire federal government footprint. The GSA manages literally 10,000 plus buildings. The Federal Protective Services has 15,000 plus humans protecting those 10,000 buildings. There's 400 plus federal courthouses. There's 140 plus VA Veterans Affairs police departments for those hospitals. Think about all the warehouses that FEMA has. You start just going down this massive, massive list as a significant opportunity and not unlike the state and local law enforcement 
and security folks, they are also starved for appropriate tools for them to properly secure the country. We get asked an awful lot, how do the robots protect themselves? You put them out in these environments and people are may decide they want to attack them. Yeah, they may, just the same way they may decide they want to attack a, a bicycle or a Segway or a police car. Ill-advised, obviously. Even more so with the fact that the robots actually monitor everything that's going on around, and we have tons of evidence that's helped us to be able to help prosecute the people who do commit any types of those acts. One of our clients up in Washington State They had an incident that occurred where a couple of buildings were broken into, and the subject that broke into the buildings also came across the robot, tried to run it over with his car, literally. And all of this was captured by the robot, was used as evidence in a trial that put three felony charges on this one uh, one individual. All three we received convictions on, and I say we, the courts, actually convicted him. And the district attorney's office called me and said, hey, I personally want to call and thank you because this is one of the coolest cases we've had to work on where the victim actually provided the majority of the evidence for everything, the victim being the robot. <laughs> and he said, I just got to say, it was, it's extraordinary. The quality of evidence that was provided was incredible. All this high definition video of all the events that took place, up close footage of the suspect himself license plate information, everything. It was just basically put into a nice, neat little folder for them. And the DA, of course, loves to have positive stats come election time. So that was a a really good one for him. Another one is a little bit more scary, I think, with the different types of sensors that we have. One can input known threats. So it could be a terminated employee could be somebody to whom you've issued a criminal trespass warning, or perhaps an abuser in an abusive relationship. The victim is coming to work and they don't want to have their abuser show up because the number one cause of workplace violence is domestic violence creeping into the workplace. You know, those fights that start at home don't end at home. And so people show up at work and bad things happen. And we had one incident where an entire assault was captured by the robot at a place of business, and the police were able to take that data and arrest the guy and prosecute him for assault on his victim. So those two are really important ones for us because it kind of hits the heart of what we've been talking about in making people safer. And we've talked to a lot of other guests on our show about artificial intelligence and the need for us humans to respond and adapt and accept the robots within our communities. And I know that you've gone through a really interesting process of the world has been your lab and you've had some incidents that have happened. But I think it's a really interesting approach is that there really, there was no night scope preview lab before you created night scope. So can you talk a little bit about you know, the exhausting process that you've gone through and how the robot has actually evolved to adapt to the an increased needs that we have? We iterate constantly. We release new software every couple of weeks, every new hardware every three, six, nine months. And the product is constantly, constantly changing. One, because there's maturation on the technology itself. Two, we learn new stuff like 
now that we've operated through six winters and six summers, you have a lot of quote unquote lessons learned or how many times did you bump your head against the wall? And, you know, you can drive some changes into the product, but like, you know, any company, never enough time, never enough resources, never enough people to do everything. But yeah, we, you can't build this stuff in a laboratory. No, no one's in the history of mankind has ever done this before. So stuff that we were worried about in private, in a conference room, maybe on a whiteboard, never came to fruition. And the stuff that was never on the whiteboard, no one ever called the meeting, never even thought about it, had no idea this could possibly happen, ends up being like, you know, major fire or major concern. And one huge competitive advantage for us is, you know, we've probably forgotten more than most people know how to do this. And that constant iteration's uh, important and it'll continue. And you reference some incidents, as we've told our 28,000 investors and we've told the media and we've told our lawyers and our underwriters and our risk managers and everybody else, there will be more incidents. You're not going to go build this and not have the things go wrong. The important thing is how do you handle it when things do go awry, when there is a problem and there is a crisis and you got to surround yourself with experienced people that can handle difficult situations and just work the problem. Are there markets that you haven't been in outside the federal that you aspire to be in? So criminals and terrorists don't care that you focus on hospitals, that you focus on casinos, or there's a vertical here in manufacturing plants that are really hot for us. If you're really serious about the mission, you want to secure the U.S., you kind of need to be everywhere. You need to literally be in every nook and cranny of indoors and outdoors. And what is that going to require? An extra small, small, medium, large, extra large, extra, extra large versions of the technology. And in order to put a million of these out in the field, you're not going to put a million of the same thing over and over again. How you secure the underpass of a, of a bridge or something is wholly different than improving the outside portion of an airport. Like you think, you know, we love our friends over at the TSA, but it's like, hey, you kind of overinvested a little bit inside the premises. You're really good, eyes on everything. How about we spend a little time not having those suspects kind of enter the building in the first place? It's that kind of stuff. And it's just like a complete lack of resources and lack of tools. This is like 200 plus years of systemic flaws and we're not going to fix it overnight. Is it fixable? Yes, it absolutely is fixable. This will take time. It will take persistence and it's going to take a cross section of the U.S., to force the change to happen. And the only way you're gonna force the change to happen is show results. You went into a community, you prevented a crime, you had statistics that show, like we have with some of our law enforcement agency clients that you made a positive impact. And you know, we always get kitted with online as like, haven't you watched all these movies, all these science fiction movies? This is gonna end very, very poorly. This is gonna end very, very poorly. And my assertion is yes, it is going to end very, very poorly for the criminals and terrorists. Yeah, and there's also just recently, there's been a lot of new streams. I mean, TikTok has become a source for activating criminal activity amongst youth, right? Which is just appalling to me that there's been these TikTok dares 
and telling kids to go destroy, vandalize property or to do certain things or smash and grab. Hold on, Don. I I have to stop you there. So many people come at us like we're worried about the robots. We're worried about the robots. We're worried about the robots. Where we sit, from what you just said, we worry about the humans. I mean, seriously, the level of stupidity is unbelievable. And that's why, yes, the technology has a bunch of opportunities and some concerns, primarily driven by 30 years of Hollywood making robots look up here somewhere, and <laughs> the capabilities actually down here somewhere. But if you sit back and look at it, are the robots really what you should be worried about? I mean, have you looked at the FBI crime clock? I'm not sure a robot had anything to do with a property crime occurring every few seconds and a, and a violent crime another few seconds, right? That's all 100% human. And then there's privacy. What about people worried about Big Brother and being watched? So <laughs> I think people have this notion that, you know, we have enough people in law enforcement and public safety to sit there and stare at all these cameras and people are saying, hey, I'm, I'm scared of the cameras and the number of cameras that are out there. And what they don't realize is that the average person is recorded something like 30-something times. It's probably gone up since the last statistic I read just by leaving the house. I mean, you, if you think about it, you have cameras everywhere. Everybody has a camera in their phone. You got cameras in the grocery store, at the bank, and the shopping centers, and everywhere else. So this notion of, oh, I'm losing my privacy is ridiculous, not to mention the fact that the laws have already stated that you have no expectation of privacy in public spaces. That's exactly why we don't patrol inside people's homes or boardrooms or restrooms, those private places. We stay out of those. But I think the people who are complaining first about the privacy are the ones who, when something bad happens, God forbid, something bad happens to them, they're going to be beating down the walls going, well, well how come you weren't deploying the best technology to, to help protect me? And that irony is not lost on us. So we make certain that when we are putting our robots out, putting our technologies out, we're engaging people from the very start, not just the people who are, you know, the decision makers and the buyers, but everybody who's going to encounter it. So as part of the deployment process, we are encouraging our clients to go out and hold naming contests to educate them on what the technology does to a certain extent. Obviously, you know, security technologies, you have to be careful with what you release about them and what they're being used for because you don't want to give a criminal an upper hand going, oh, okay, I know I know what they're doing with this and now I know how to avoid it. But you educate them, you get them bought into it the moment that you start the deployment itself. And what we have found is by doing that, by, by bringing all of the people in who this is going to, to affect, so employees, customers, suppliers, visitors, etc. they actually have some level of ownership in the technology before it ever even arrives. And that has actually helped us more than anything. Even people calling up the media and saying, hey, we're going to have this new technology. We want everybody to know about it. So those things help on the Big Brother side. It, it dispels that fear that people have there. I think to put a finer point on it, contractually, what's written legally the data, the security data, is not owned by us. It's owned by the client. So the concept of Big Brother goes away real quick when that client only has their data 
we're not collecting all of everyone's stuff and keeping it, right? So every 15 to 30 days, the stuff gets wiped. But the FBI has a, an API for the most wanted list. If we had a million robots out there, would one feel a little bit more comfortable that the FBI is looking for this particular suspect and you've got a million machines out there looking for that particular person? So I think that's the privacy thing needs to be a discussion. It can't be a binary on or off. So I think having a thoughtful conversation about that, it'd be helpful. And you've said yourself how many times you heard no from traditional investment community, right? And that they rather invest in a photo sharing app or the next widget you put in your pocket and not necessarily in the safety of America, which is really disheartening. I'm going to get myself in trouble here, Donna, but you know, $130 billion gets st- dumped into startups, 80% into software, 10% into biotech, and then 10% into other. Is that really the makeup of the entire planet? It's 80% software, right? It is not. That is not the case. And what infuriates me the most is like, you've got a bunch of institutional investors running around with primarily early stage and middle growth stage VCs walking around with their business models literally to be wrong nine times out of 10. I'm looking for the one thing, the one home run that's going to make up my sins or the rest of the fund, which is fine. But except for probably one or two firms, all of them walk around with an attitude like they're right nine times out of 10. Like, okay. So I'm not so sure about that business model. And why is it that they would like to disrupt everything? I want to disrupt the, as a VC, I want to disrupt the education system, currencies, Let's destabilize healthcare. Let's go mess up marketing, advertising stuff. There's all kinds of disruptions everywhere you can look, right? But do not disrupt, change, or otherwise modify the fundraising process. So you want to disrupt everything except for what you do, which is provide a commodity at a very expensive price to cover your two and 20. I've got a you know, kind of intellectual problem with that. And why are found, and I'm probably one of the very few that can say this, like why are founders brainwashed that that's the only source of capital? It is appropriate for some companies, highly appropriate. If you've got a bunch of, you know, ex-social media folks that built awesome, great companies and have a fund together and they can help you and they want a couple of board seats and they're going to sell you 20% of the company to them, go for it. Do that all day long because they actually will it will be actually beneficial and accretive to your investors. But most of the time, that's not the case. And so I'm hoping maybe one or two founders out there realize that maybe there's a different path and they can actually have a better control over the outcome of the company and be able to fight through what is a very difficult process of growing a company from a standing start. For me, it's I handle all of the, the client-facing side of the company. So for me, the things that I enjoy talking about are our events, the things that we do to interface with people, to see how we're actually able to help, you know, take some of those wins that we've had and then multiply them over and over and over again. And in order to do that, we created the Robot Roadshow, and we're literally going around the country. We've got this amazing little futuristic-looking pod 
that we will bring to any major city around the country. We just look for hosts. So people who may want to be a host site to have robots come in for a day and then invite all your neighbors in and all the community in to come and see what the technology is and how it's helping. That to me is incredible because you get one, you get to meet a lot of new folks. Two, you get to we as a, as a team get to actually do what we're supposed to do and sell the technology. But three, we get new inspiration and ideas. And it's always uplifting to talk to people who see the technology for the first time. And they go, oh, my God, I didn't know this existed. This is incredible. And so the, the Robot Roadshow, you can go on our website, click on Roadshow, and you can see all the future sites that we're going to be at. If you're interested in hosting, you can go down and click on the, the host button and volunteer to have your site considered. But all that whole event side is for me, that, that's where it's at, because that's the boots on the ground day in and day out with the end users, the people who are really going to see the benefit of this. And as Bill said, that's our mission. Our mission is to make people safer and to see their eyes light up and get to interact with the robots and such. All of that is, is really, really exciting for us. <laughs> it, Donna, it brings the kid out of everyone. Once they come see the robots, Stacy managed to get it into Washington, D.C. We're at the Ronald Reagan building for a couple of days before the year was out. And it was just hilarious to me just watching very serious, very senior government officials walk into the pod and all of a sudden they're doing the doing the selfie thing with the robots it's just it's just uh, just adorable to see can you take a picture of me can you take a picture of me i want to <laughs> i want to post this i want to show my kids that it's it's all of that that was bill and stacy the two co-founders of nightscope what's most impressive to me about these two and their crime fighting robots is that they have remained committed to their vision of making America the safest country in the world, even in the face of skepticism and outright rejection. Plenty of investors told him no. Plenty of potential clients are worried that a five-foot-tall robot patrolling their facilities would scare away customers or other stakeholders. But they've persevered. They persevered because they believe in the data and they believe in their mission. Bill likes to talk in statistics. Crime in the U.S. has a $2 trillion negative economic impact every year. Every 26.2 seconds, there's a violent crime somewhere in the country. And to protect a nation of 328 million people in 50 states, we have just 2 million law enforcement and security professionals on patrol. NiceGoat plans to add about 1 million more in the form of their robots. Only the robots don't need to sleep. They don't need vacations. They don't even eat donuts, and they're not worried about COVID. Nightscope envisions a world where we have eyes and ears on the ground to enhance our human patrols 24-7. It's a lofty goal, but it's one that Bill and Stacy take very seriously. As they like to say, if the criminals win, nobody wins. But if Nightscope wins, everybody wins. Thank you for listening. Follow Before Happen on Instagram and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and share the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Before It Happen is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer, with additional editing and music provided by Noda Lab.